Welcome to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Getting Common covers a variety of topics and features guests from business, law, politics, government, education, and some of the most insightful entrepreneurs. It's a refreshing, common-sense approach to some of the most important discussion points today. Now, here is your host, Carlos Chapman. Hello, everyone. I'm Carlos Chapman, and I am your host of Getting Common. In my day job, I am an associate professor at Washington and Lee University's Law School. The topic of today's episode is Black Women Voters as Property, and we will be discussing the role Black women have played in American politics, in saving our democracy over and over again, and why in many areas there isn't much to show for the dedication to the Democratic Party. I have assembled some great guests today um, to engage in this discussion, and I will allow them each to introduce themselves. First, Madiba. Hi there. Uh, pleasure to be here. My name is Madiba Denny. I'm also an attorney, uh, as well as a columnist and a professor, and my work focuses on fair and equitable distribution of political power. And next, Marissa jackson So. Hi, um, thanks for having me, Carlos, and it's great to be with you in Madiba today. I, too, am an attorney and also a law professor currently at St. John's University School of Law. So I want to start us off with a little history lesson uh, featuring one of my heroes, Shirley Chisholm. I think there is no better place to start than with Shirley Chisholm if we're going to talk about Black women in politics. And so, Marissa, could you let our listeners know who Shirley Chisholm is and why she was so significant. Yeah, so Shirley Chisholm is, as you know, the precursor to Bernie Sanders, and people don't realize that. She's a Barbadian American woman from Brooklyn. She, you know, uh, was born in the Caribbean and came up um, as many, you know, many uh, Americans, <laughs> Black Americans in New York City did um, in her youth with her sisters. Um, she became a teacher. She attended, you know, Brooklyn College, became a teacher um, and then, you know, decided to push her way past the Brooklyn machine into politics. She went through a lot to do so. She had to push past the, the, the racism of, of New York City politics, as well as misogyny from even fellow black men who were in politics at the time. Um, ultimately joined the New York State Assembly and then finally became a congresswoman, and of course, launched a historic bid for presidency. Uh, and she was a really, really, really um, fortuitous and vocal feminist um, that sort of really sets her apart from, um, you know, some of the Black politics we see today. I love that uh, slight, you know, <laughs> disclaimer there. Uh, but we'll get into that in a minute. Madiba, now, when I read about Shirley Chisholm now, what everyone says is, it was a foregone conclusion that she never had a chance to win president, right? It's a foregone conclusion. You know, I, and when you read about her historically, every race that she won, everyone assumed she would lose until she won. So I would just, you know, like your opinion on, you know, why was it assumed that she would never win anything? And why was it assumed that it would be a foregone conclusion that she would absolutely not win the Democratic Party nomination? Right. I think that's because Shirley Chisholm was absolutely aware that she was going to be doubly disadvantaged by being both Black and being a woman. Uh, a lot of people weren't ready for that. A lot of people still aren't ready for that. Uh, and so it was like a real testament to her strength and her skills that she was able to overcome all of that. 
Uh, I would also note that Shirley Chisholm's, uh, like the title of her autobiography and like her campaign slogan was unbought and unbossed. And those are two things that are just completely antithetical to what America has always historically wanted for Black Americans and especially Black women uh, just literally were uh, bought and bossed around. And for women to... uh, for women, for Black women to claim that power uh, was a threat to the existing uh, political system. Now, you know, the title of this episode is Black Women Voters is Property. And it, it kind of comes from, uh, you know, the idea of, of what Shirley Chisholm stood for, that we are not property of, of any particular party. Our votes are not to be assumed. But, you know, I think in, in continuing with the historical context, I'd love to hear from either of you. You know, were Black women carrying the Democratic Party even back then? And back then, was there really anything to show for it? I mean, I, I'll, I'll weigh in. I mean, she she's proved that actually Black women were still carrying a lot of water for the uh, Democratic Party, even in the 1940s and 50s. She was doing a ton of organizing before, um, and she just couldn't understand. You know, she talks about this in on Bought and on Boston, couldn't understand why she's doing all this work and not not getting any of the leadership share. Um, and, you know, and to the, you know, further to the theme of the show today, right? There's also a really good part of the book where she talks about how um, New York City, many New York City employees, like Black employees in particular, were like really um, content to just have a good job um, and, and to be owned in the workplace and didn't want to shake things up. And she decided, no, I'm not going to play within those rules. I'm not going to be property. I'm going to be a proprietor. Right. Um, but it does. It, what's what's really fantastic about her is that she did shake up the system in that way because there were all these black women who were working in the background. Right. And it even extend this beyond New York, this New York City political machine to even the emergent civil rights movements throughout the country where like women such as Fannie Lou Hamer and Ella Baker and all these other unknown, unseen women, women like Rosa Parks were doing all of this groundwork, but then, right, who's at the front line of, right, the March on Washington, all the men, right? And we're like, where are the women? They're doing all the work. So Shirley Chisholm ruffled a lot of feathers and disturbed a lot of egos because she said, I'm actually not property. I'm actually going to create property for myself and for the people who have the same vision as I, I do. I would, I would also tack on to that. You know, I think there's this uh, misplaced desire to think of these things as purely historical. Uh, like, to, like, first of all, they don't want to acknowledge historical context in the first place. And then second, even when folks do, it's like, well, that was a long time ago. And it's like, no, we are very clearly still living uh, with the consequences of those past actions. We're still uh, perpetrating similar actions uh, I learned this morning that this happened just yesterday, uh, that a Black woman Congress member was shoved and cursed at by a uh, one of her white male Congress member co-parts. And she said to him, she, yeah, I know, like, I, was, I was taken aback by this. She had asked him to put a mask on when they were entering the Capitol uh, train, and he uh, dismissed her and sort of like poked at her like, in the back and like shoved her. And she... Uh, asked him not to put his hands on her and he said kiss my ass and I just felt that this was so representative of the degradation that uh, women have gone through especially black women and even when we theoretically ascend to these you know positions of power and I was also particularly struck by something she said to him Um, she said I'm a member of congress like you 
and I'm a woman, like, do not disrespect me like this. And it was just giving me echoes of that, uh, like, anti-woman speech, just sort of standing up and saying, like, I am here, I am deserving of equal treatment and respect, and, like, I am going to take that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, Marissa, you know, in your introduction of Shirley Chisholm, um, you stated, and she's a feminist, and you said, you know, that's not, that's, you know, not as prominent today or not as, as claimed today. I'd love to unpack that comment a little bit with you. Well, you know, I'm, I'm not, I, it sounded like I was throwing more shade than perhaps I intended to, although the shade is deserved. Um, and and the, the fact is that Shirley Chisholm was actually given a lot of flack because people didn't think she was enough of a race woman. Um, and, and there was a period of time where she did prioritize the feminism over um, the race, you know, the race womanism, but over the course of her career, she found ways to merge both, right? You see that early in her career, she had no real concept of intersectionality. She felt that she had to choose, like, do I deal with gender discrimination or do I deal with, deal with racial discrimination? And over time, she started to merge both really sort of explicitly, but she never, ever, ever sacrificed her commitment to womanhood and particularly black womanhood um, for the sake of, right, this sort of like general, right, race sort of race construct. And I think a lot of that is missing um, in our politics right now, particularly within black politics, where right now there is um, sort of this idea that Right. We are just we are as black leaders, as black politicians, um, you know, not at all responsible to the communities from which we've come. We're ruling everybody, even though, in fact, we are judged on the basis of our skin color, on the basis of our racial heritage. And then there are also the folks who are really have a race conscious focus, but do not do anything to address the particular needs of non-men and women in the community, even though we are bearing the burden, both economically and politically and socially, of all the failed policies, right, in this country, particularly as we're talking about the pandemic, when we're talking about essential workers, when we're talking about child tax credits, non-men, particularly women, are bearing the brunt of all of those issues. And when you have um, leaders who are Black, who, per, who portend to advance a race politics that is not intersectional and that does not edify um, Black women and the concerns of non-men and trans people, then those people, I think, are doing a lot of harm. And I think those people do need to take a, a page out of Shirley Chisholm's book, um, because that's one thing that she did particularly fabulously. Um, and, you know, that part of her history is sometimes obscured now because, you um, white liberals have just flattened her into a bunch of statues, but that's another conversation. <laughs> Medeva, do you want to follow up? Um, yeah, you know, I think this is definitely something that Shirley Chisholm was clearly a pioneer in and is still really uh, something that lots of organizations, lots, lots of uh, advocates and activists struggle with. Uh, it's sort of a uh, unnecessarily narrow focus. Like you'll see sometimes in some uh, mainstream feminist groups thinking about, okay, we're all about the rights of women and advancement of women, but fail to consider how things impact women of color differently. And it's like, if you do that, that's not really feminism. That's just white supremacy. And then you look at some like racial justice work or people who think they're doing uh, fully racial justice work that leaves out Black women, leaves out trans Black people. And it's like, okay, you're not actually really 
advancing the rights uh, of Black people if it's exclusive to like a subcategory of Black people. Like we have to broaden our focus because we're all in this together and all of our liberties and freedoms are bound up in each other's. So that's definitely something that we need to be more conscious of and working uh, more directly towards. You know, I've, I've noticed this in the reporting of rising crime and it is consistent on every network. It doesn't matter the gender of the reporter, but what I hear is black men are dying or black men have been shot or black, the rate of black men being killed or the rate of black men being incarcerated. And the phenomenal thing is the rate of black women being incarcerated has risen more than the rate of black men. You know, when, when neighborhoods are shot up, black women are shot too. Like black women are killed by police and sexually assaulted by police on a regular basis. But anytime we talk about crime, it's as if it only happens to black men and it doesn't trickle down to anyone else or affect anyone else. Um, and we don't even, we haven't even started talking about, you know, the rate of crime against trans women. Um, and the rate of death of trans women and the amount of harassment trans women uh, experience with law enforcement. Um, and so the idea that we would still not be intersectional at all and still assume when we say Black, we mean men. And when we say women, we mean white women. All this time later um, is a little unsettling, especially given what we do for the Democratic Party. Uh, so we, before we transition to the next topic, um, you know, and either of you can jump into this. You know, what is it that Black women have done for the Democratic Party? You know, we keep, we're, we've made this claim over and over again. So, so what is it that we do for them? Keep them in office when they're there. <laughs> uh, you know, Black women are the most consistent voters for the Democratic Party. Uh, like when you look at the like actual data, it's what upwards of 90 percent. Uh, of Black women will vote for the, uh, of, the of the electorate, I mean. It's not that upwards of 90% of Black women can vote. That's a whole other thing. Uh, but when there are Black women voters, when we turn out, uh, we overwhelmingly vote for uh, the Democratic Party. And so it really saved them uh, at, the, at the polls many times. You know, what's fascinating to me is, you know, I've never seen the New York Times piece that's like, why do 90% of Black women vote for the Democratic Party? You know, with the like extreme think piece level of kind of navel gazing about soccer moms who are also Black, by the way. Um, most of the soccer <laughs> yeah, my mom was a soccer mom. <laughs> I know. Like most of the soccer moms I know in Northern Virginia are Black women, just FYI, right? Like I don't know many non-Black soccer moms, um, especially given how many people play soccer in Africa. Like I don't get the, the disconnect, and right? Like, so many and, moms are of color. Yeah. I would like to just add in there as well, when you talk about this sort of navel gazing, these loving, thoughtful, overthoughtful profiles. Like we went to this rural diner in West Virginia to ask these Trump voters why they're still voting for Trump. Uh, <laughs> and there's no such similar coverage of like any other voter. Like no, you don't see anything on like the front page of the New York Times. Like I went to beauty salon and asked a woman there buying their braids, like what, like what drives their political and economic choices. There's no such coverage uh, because it's just taken for granted, uh, whether by politicians themselves or by the media. It's just sort of consistently uh, the concerns of people 
who are not white men. And then especially as you get farther and farther from that uh, and you add in layers of identity, like class or like gender, or like sexuality, then the sort of powers that be get less and less concerned with their well-being. I think there's also this, um, well, first of all, to add to Madiba's point, right? We go to, they talk about the rural voter. Black people are also rural, right? That's the thing. Every one of these demographics that they obsess about when they're actually trying to, right, just interview white people, right? And they, they want to call it working class. I'm like, well, Black people are working class, right? They want to talk about millennials. Black people are also urban millennials. Like, just say you are concerned about the interests of white people exclusively um, because Black people, we do all of those things and more. There are Black women to be found in each of those demographics. Um, and so, you know, I, I think, and you know, I, I hope I'm not sort of like stealing the thunder from the, the next topic, but it's like, there's this idea that somehow we don't, not just that we don't matter, but we actually owe the Democratic Party. And so therefore there's no need to profile us or get into what our interests are because, you know, what else are we going to do? Um, except for vote for Democrats, which is crazy because more and more Black people are actually not voting for Democrats anymore. Um, because of, right, um, you know, this failure to realize that you want to talk about white populists? Well, Black people can be populist too. And Black people are, you know, peeling off and voting for far-right candidates now um, because um, the Democratic Party has failed to meet any of their needs and that, econo that economic anxiety that they think is reserved for white men is actually also gaining traction within sections of the Black populations as well. You know, I'd love to talk about voting rights because we keep talking about Black women voters. Um, and we, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, Shirley Chisholm in the history versus now. Um, and I, I'd love for y'all to like, just talk about whether there've been any improvements in voter voting rights uh, and how is it that we have a party that counts on Black votes that can't seem to ensure that Black people vote? Yeah, we have we have had advancements in voting rights like over time in the United States, but every time we get those advancements, you then see them clawed back. You see them weakened and sort of taken away when people get concerned and threatened by the idea that uh, black people uh, or really anyone who again is not a sort of central class of rich old white dudes um, might claim and exercise any kind of power over their own of their own lives and being able to make decisions for themselves and their communities. Uh, so, you know, in the in the 1980s, we got the uh, some significant amendments to the Voting Rights Act. The Voting Rights Act, which is already you know historic in its own right, like was significant enough that we got the Voting Rights Act. And then, because of a flawed Supreme Court precedent and interpretation of the Voting Rights Act, Congress said, "Okay, that's not what we meant." Uh, we were trying to actually do a better racial justice thing than that. Let's go and amend the Voting Rights Act so uh, the Supreme Court interprets it the way we meant it to be interpreted. And we can make sure that people of color's uh, voting rights are protected, even if someone's not explicitly saying on paper, I don't want Black people to vote. Like, people are usually smarter than that. <laughs> like, they don't say it outright. And so the court tried, so sorry, so Congress attempted to uh, account for that. So we see some advancements like that over time when it's like, okay, we are trying to adapt to the situations as we see them, uh, the evolving nature of discrimination, because bigots are bigots are very creative. Uh, they're always coming up with new ways uh, to, to disenfranchise others. Um, but now 
we are seeing a really severe pullback of those voting rights. We are seeing the Voting Rights Act, again, get cut out and just like disemboweled, misinterpreted, uh, getting these dangerous precedents that prevent people of color from having any say over their political lives, which means, uh, of course, no say over your actual lives as well. Uh, so yeah, it's a really uh, troubling and dangerous anti-democratic white supremacist movement we're currently seeing that sort of seizing back all of those gains. Marissa, do you want to weigh in on the Supreme Court this week? Yeah, um, so... Right. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I don't even know whether I should start from the top or the bottom. Well, I'll start from the bottom. So the uh, the appellate court, right, that, you know, basically was trying to sort of basically, you know, protect voting rights, right, was actually made up of some Trump-appointed judges. Um, and it's actually a testament to how conservative, right, and how partisan the Supreme Court of the United States has become, right, that um, they they still said no 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 right this is like led by Scalito and Kavanaugh justices Scalito and Kavanaugh I have a hard time using the word justices I want to call them the injustices Kavanaugh and Alito um, went out of their way to write right put a stay on that and 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 basically they're going to wait until after the elections right so that all the harm can be done before they take this up again. It was actually too racist for Judge Roberts, okay, right? So he actually joined the dissent, right? That's how insane this is becoming. And it's just really funny that, you know, there's all this hullabaloo right now over this unnamed, right, unchosen Black woman Supreme Court pick when ultimately she's going to participate in, right, a perpetually frustrated minority on a hyper-partisan court um, that has a, a conservative supermajority. And so the question really is um, how much difference, how much substantive and legal difference will this one woman be expected to make um, when the politics of the court, the structure of the court um, is, is otherwise. But yes, I mean, as of now, right, in advance of the midterms and the, um, the, the, the primaries um, later on this year, um, the court, the Supreme Court is working overtime to actually roll back voting rights and, and access to the polls for um, for people of color and specifically with respect to this Alabama case to um, uphold barriers to um, political representation. Right. So the ability of black people in particular to. Um, be able to elect Black people to office, which is another huge part of this equation. Want to comment on SCOTUS, Mediva? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, Marissa was absolutely right when she uh, highlighted that even when we get this Black woman justice on the court, uh, it's still going to be part of a stark, uh, lops starkly lopsided court. Uh, we have this 6-3 conservative supermajority. And conservative is perhaps the wrong word because there's nothing conservative or restrained about uh, the type of radical damage they've been doing to longstanding foundations uh, of law and rights protections. Um, but even so, even so, jurisprudentially, there's going to be somewhat of a limited impact or rather, if not limited, uh, delayed impact. Like, like I anticipate dissents that will decades from now potentially then be taken up by a new majority and utilized and say, uh, we were wrong then, this dissent was actually the right way to do things. But for right now, uh, the actual ability of a single justice 
uh, it's going to be very slim. Um, there will, you know, there's there's some there's some possibilities that maybe uh, her mere presence would uh, sufficiently shame <laughs> uh, some of her uh, fellow fellow justices into behaving slightly better than they otherwise would, and like maybe she'll be able to exercise some. Uh, persuasive and reasoning powers. Uh, But there's only so much you can do when there's six justices on one side and three on the other. With that said, there is still a reason why there is all this brouhaha, uh, all of this like wild backlash to the mere suggestion of a yet unnamed Black woman on the Supreme Court. And it's there there are two reasons I identify for this. Uh, One is that there's been this myth that's foundational to the country that everything is based on meritocracy and it just so happens that it's always white guys who come out on top. Like it's not actually about protection of white mediocrity. Uh, And the second thing uh, is then you would have to admit that racial discrimination is real. uh, Gender discrimination is real. And these things don't just go away when we don't talk about them. Like we have to actually actively select a black woman for the Supreme Court uh, to increase representation and to increase the the communities uh, who can be served by the court because it has historically had super constrained, super limited, super narrow view, um, which very likely because it has consistently uh, for almost all of its history been made up of rich old white dudes whose whose conception of the law is limited to rich old white dude concerns. Um, so that's really like a big part of it. Like people just really distraught by the idea of accepting that a black woman uh, deserves a space on the Supreme Court by accepting that she's qualified, that the courts we've had so far perhaps aren't doing the best job, uh, that perhaps communities are being underserved and that the law has been used purposefully to help some people and to hurt others and that there are people who have been historically excluded from the political community who should have the chance to exercise some sense of self-determination, exercise some sense of control over their own uh, political futures. Um, That's really a concern we're seeing here. It's like a fight for multiracial democracy. It's a fight for true self-governance. I'm realizing I'm just like getting up on a little soapbox here because I feel very passionately about this. but yeah, that's that's the core of the issue. It's a small, uh, diminishing minority of uh, like wealthy white men with like very conservative views who want to exercise control over everyone else. And so the idea that a black woman would be on the court and begin to exercise some sense of self determination and that it might give other groups ideas that they too should be getting a sense of self-determination and able to uh, make decisions for themselves and their communities, they can't abide that. And so that's even why it's still the 6-3 lopsided majority. There's still just the, the threat that this concept presents that has them losing their damn minds. Ooh. I feel like I should snap or something. Like you were just <laughs> you know, right on point because you know what it, what it makes me think about is, and this is off topic, but it makes me think about the fight against critical race theory that happened in the fall and how it has evolved into the fight against gays and the fight against Jewish people and the fight, right? It's like, you know, Marissa and I's article was about Black women being canaries in the coal mine, right? And so if you, if you can get a Black woman on the court 
you're exposing everything. You know, just the mere idea that the, the to say lesser black woman as if you've ever met one. <laughs> I haven't, right? Like we don't, ex- lesser black women do not exist. I need to just put that. I would love to meet a mediocre black woman. I would love to like send her my way because we don't make it if we are mediocre. If, if I was mediocre, I'd be a janitor or homeless or in jail, right? Like that is like where we, we don't get to be. Right. We don't get to be mediocre. So the idea that a black woman survives law school and clerkships and sitting on another bench and is lesser is insane. Right. Like us graduating law school was a miracle. (laughs) I mean, also like also the way this country is set up. And I think that's another thing that um, having a black woman justice, particularly one who might have had experience in criminal defense, will also expose the fact that there are actually plenty of exceptional black women who are working as janitors who are who are in jail. Right. Right. It's like there are a lot of black women in jail who would have been a better president than Donald J. Trump. But if I speak, <laughs> but if I don't get me started. Right. Um, I, you know, I, one thing about this, I, you know, just the, the procedural part of this whole justice thing that I think actually relates back to voting rights and black women's voting rights and voting power is the fact that there are no black women in the U.S. Senate right now. And for this justice to get confirmed, they have to pass through a Senate that has no Black woman. There are no Black women who are in the U.S. Senate, right? And, you know, and I think this is a conversation for another day, but like what, I have questions about what good is the Senate doing for any of us? What good does the Senate do for Black people? We already know that the roots of Senate of the Senate are have 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 roots in slavery, right? There, there's a background in slavery and in maintaining power for propertied elite white men, but the fact is that though that that legacy continues, um, and so you know, I think you guys were talking about right. Madipa was talking very, very spot on about you know the right the, the, this this tranche of of like moneyed older white men right who are conservative. But it's like that conservatism is not limited to the Republican Party, right? Joe Biden governs to the right of Boris Johnson, right? Joe Biden governs to the right of Donald Trump on a number of policy issues, including immigration, right? Expanding, right, in, right anti-immigrant right policies and things like that. So, you know, and, and he has long career on the Senate, right? Um, and, and it's, you know, it's having issues as a president because he continues to behave as a senator more so than as a presidency president. But whoever this, whoever this um, nominee is going to be is going to actually have to get the um, blessing of a body of men, primarily men, who do not represent the will of Black women voters. As a matter of fact, go out of their way to stifle the will of Black women voters by slamming down and interrupting and obfuscating everything that comes to them by um, an, like an increasingly democratic um, House of like House of Representatives, right? And so it's it's not just about voting rights, it, although it is about voting rights, but it's not just about voting rights. It's also about voting power and our agency and how much our vote can actually purchase us. Um, and so I just think that's another thing that um, I think the media, the media has really done a bad job of actually talking about that, right? You know, and I don't know that the solution is to put another Kamala Harris on the Senate. I think we actually need to have a conversation about the Senate <laughs> and how it's become so anti-democratic. Because Kamala Harris is the only Black woman to ever be in the Senate, right? Correct. I believe so. 
Yeah. I, think so. I believe that's right. Uh, also, two things. First, Marissa, everything you said was completely spot on. Um, second, as you described the absence of Black women in the Senate, it just really made me think, and like how the Senate just doesn't serve our communities. It made me think of the writing of Elizabeth Hira. Um, She is a good friend, a brilliant uh, woman of color attorney. She had a piece published in Ms. Magazine a couple of days ago, and she had this line in it that's just stayed with me. I'm going to be thinking about it for a while. When she turned to the Senate and said that when Kirsten Sinema refused to uh, protect the voting rights of communities of color, when she like prevented us from being able to fully participate in democratic process, she didn't have to look a single black woman in the Senate in the eye because there are none. And I was just like, well, damn, <laughs> like that is just stuck with me uh, because it just really underscores how unrepresentative the processes are at every step of the way uh, and how, you know, often our interests are not being served and how there's just this, yeah, there's just this stark imbalance in whose views and concerns are elevated, uh, who is accepted as the default of, of course, they can have power and who has to fight for every single little modicum of it. Yeah. Should the Supreme Court, like, should those, should those be lifetime terms? Should Barack Obama have been at the mercy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Like, can we talk? <laughs> right? We can. We can. <laughs> like, really, really, really. Like, do, should, do we, are we at the mercy? Should he have been at the mercy of white feminism for as, 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 as to whether he could put people on the bench or not? Right. And so. Right. And look at what look at what we're dealing with now. Look at look at how how ridiculous and how grave, how basic and trifling this is that we're talking about putting someone in just so that they can be part of a super minority. Right. Because Barack Obama basically had to wait for Ruth Bader Ginsburg to decide that she was not going to step down during his term. Right. Should the Supreme Court like, do we even need can we even talk about you know, the sacrosanctness of this idea that Supreme Court justices should be on the bench for life. is Should should we continue? Like, is that also anti-democratic? Because we can't really continue with this idea that it's somehow not partisan. The Supreme Court is a partisan body. It is a political body. And since it's political, maybe it should be subjected to the same political processes as the other branches of government. Absolutely. Yeah. As, you, as you speak about how unrepresentative it is, I... And I think about how it's baked into every step of the institutions, right? Uh, so it's like you have this Senate uh, that was constructed from, the, from its origins to uh, emphasize the political power of like rural, like white slaveholders. Um, so we have, so we have this, uh, this body where already it's like every person's vote is just not worth the same. Uh, and you have a president who, uh, you know, because of gerrymandering, because of the electoral college, uh, the popular vote, uh, not not necessarily a factor in who becomes the president. Um, so you have a person who doesn't necessarily reflect the will of the voters uh, putting forth a, putting forth a, a nominee to a group of people who also does not reflect the will of the voters, and then they get to confirm a person and put them on for life to decide issues that affect people. Uh, who are not reflected at any stage of the process is frankly absurd uh, and just really underscores their point of how badly we need court reform and how badly we need uh, democracy reform more generally. These two things go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. 
All right. So I was going to ask about positives, but I don't, I don't feel like we're in the mood for that. So instead, <laughs> that's not our vibe today. So, you know, I think I'd like to talk about solutions. Like, how can we start to claim some power? What, what can we do to claim some power? Short term, long term? I think we're doing, I think a lot of us are doing the work. Like, I think a lot of us are doing the work. I think real G's move in silence. And I think many of us are doing that. Um, I think that the work that Black women are doing in the South to build a new South is very, very, very important. Um, And I think there's a difference in sort of the trends that we have in the South um, versus the, you know, what's happening in, in, in many of our Northern cities where this idea that, you know, we're liberal, we're good. And so we end up with Eric Adams and Lori Lightfoot, which is, wow, bah humbug, right? But as by contrast, down south, even though it's quiet and it's gradual, there's a lot of base building that I think means a lot. And I, you know, I think um, we're already starting to see the fruits of that movement. Um, and I think that those dividends will continue to pay off into the future. I just hope that there's not too much disillusionment with the Democratic Party that it doesn't bear fruit. Because again, if if the Democratic Party doesn't actually decide to take off the fake kente stoles and actually get some real like pro-black policy in there, you're going to continue to see black men particularly um, start to continue to vote for Republicans um, and crazy candidates. And so a lot of the work that black women are doing to organize um, may become in, may be in vain. Um, On the other hand, I think there is a lot of mobilization amongst young people um, that is starting to bear fruit. And I think that that is, a potential solution. But again, I think, and we're talking about this at the beginning, it, it, it can't just be on our backs as black women to continue to like do all this organizing work. We do need people to actually make policy changes. Um, and um, it, it's going to require the democratic party to stop moving, the, the, like moving in the suicidal way, right? This They've got to decide that they want to have a sustainable party and they can't really have one without black women or black men for that matter. You have thoughts, Mediva? Yeah, uh, especially when Marissa mentioned uh, fear of disillusionment, um, because I think you, at, at least I have increasingly seen in some of the political and internet circles that I travel in, uh, some people calling for just like full-on divestment from the electoral process altogether. It's just this feeling of like fed upness, and being like, this isn't going to do anything for us. Uh, personally, that's not the, that's not the avenue that I would support. I, my fear is I don't want to leave any power left on the table. Um, I think we need to, uh, seize basically like use, use all of the tools in our toolbox. Like we need to have like a multifaceted, like multi-pronged approach. So if you, you know, some people are going to be doing that community-based like organizing and coalition building and like, like community education stuff that's good. Like for some people to run for office, like that's also good. Like we need to have people like moving on, like firing on all cylinders. Um, Connected to that, I think you see uh, among uh, conservatives, especially like a real commitment to every layer of government, like not just the presidency and not just like the United States Congress, but your state uh, legislatures and not just the state legislatures, but like your county board of educations, I guess, as we were talking about the critical race theory uh, concerns. Uh, And something that's especially dangerous, uh, you see board of elections. Uh, There's a movement happening right now uh, that has 
gotten some, but not enough as far as I'm concerned, uh, media attention where uh, believers in Trump's big lie about voter fraud and the election being stolen are running to be on the boards of elections so they can sh- like have like a closer hand in manipulating, if not outright overturning and sabotaging election results to further deprive people from having a real say in, in the possibility of representative government. And so I think we need to really be concerned about all of our possible uh, avenues, like all of the possible like access points to power and make sure that, you know, like one person can't do everything, but a lot of people can do a lot of things. And so we can make sure that we're covering our basis and like working on multiple fronts. You know, I would just like us to acknowledge that we've been here before, right? Mm-hmm. Civil War ended mm-hmm. and what happened? Right. You had a, you had black men in Congress. You had black, you know, black men in, in state houses. You had black people owning property. You had black people moving up into the middle class or upper class. And then what happened? Exactly what we have now post Obama. Right. Mm-hmm. We have exa- like we have literally done this before. And so to pretend I mean, for me, um, and I've said this to people to their face, so I don't mind saying it um, <laughs> on the show. Like, to me, when you pretend like you can be moderate and wait, or you can be quiet in the face of, you know, oppression of voter rights, oppression of women's rights, and pretend like, oh, I'm a liberal white person, but I'm also moderate and I can't do anything, like, it's gaslighting, right? Because we have a history lesson here that says if you continue to negotiate with the people who are oppressing us, it merely gets worse for us and you're going to be fine no matter what, but we will not be. And eventually you won't be fine either, right? It just takes you longer to not be fine. So to pretend like we literally don't have a blueprint for what the Republican party is doing, right? We can go back to 1865, look at the 20 years and see exactly what's happening now. And so to pretend like, oh, it's it's not such a big deal if black women can't vote. It's not such a big deal if women don't have the right to choose. It's not such a big deal. We can still, you know, Joe can go compromise, compromise with Mitch on his houseboat and it'll be all good. You know, that's problematic, right? It's, it's very, very problematic. What I would like to talk about next, though, is, is Black Republican the look? Or if Black Republican isn't the look, I see your face. <laughs> if Black Republican isn't the look, is democratic socialism and all these other alternative parties the look either? Like, is an alternative party structure at all the way to go? So I have, I have thoughts on this. The problem with all of these movements, the problem with the status quo, the problem with Republicans, the problem with Democrats, the problem with the democratic socialists of America, the problem with the Bernie bros, the problem with the Green Party is that they all hate Black women. <laughs> That's the problem. The problem is that they all are white supremacists, right? And that they all have particular disdain and disregard for Black women. And it comes out in different ways, but it's all the same. And when you're a Black woman, you can see it a mile away. You can see it coming from a mile away. So, and, and, and this is also from history too, right? There was a period of time when a lot of Black people became communist sympathizers. And then they were like, wait, 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 you guys don't like us. 
You still hate us, okay, right? You you say that you have these different values, but at the end of the day, you're still making us do all the free work. You're still telling us to shut up. You're still mansplaining to us. You're still white-splaining to us. So I don't think that we can really look to other institutions and structures as a solution if they're going to replicate that same behavior. I think Black republicanism, I mean, again, we've seen this 20s and the 40s. A lot of Black people became nativists. They had these horrible reactions to um, immigration, um, they had this idea that, right, this the scarcity politics that these immigrants are coming to take our jobs. A lot of that is being played out in the, the Black populism that you see today. It is not a solution. But, you know, I don't think that, you know, necessarily, I think that, you know, a Bernie Sanders um, might have tried to advance more progressive social and economic policies, but I think they still would have been completely, completely disappointing to Black black people because he refused to acknowledge race. He refused to deal with the concerns that Black women had, even when they were brought to him. So again, right, it really doesn't matter what political party you attach to it. If you are not able to see Black women as proprietors and as, as political and social contractors, you're going to have the same outcome. And it doesn't matter whether you have Black women as your, you know, as your chief of staff or your vice president, if you continue to treat them like garbage, right? And if the Black woman that you have as your mouthpieces also adhere to the politics of white supremacy, you will still find yourselves in the same uh, positions, right? We will still find ourselves um, right, talked around and gaslit and exploited and pandered to in really shallow and insulting ways. We will still never experience the power and purchase of our votes. So I think what we really need to do is revoke, right, and really sort of disinvest from white supremacy and patriarchy. And we're going to need our allies, our friends, right, our white liberal friends to do a lot more work, not just because we are tired and we shouldn't have to continue to do this. But at the end of the day, we only make up 12 percent of the of the of the right of the population in this country. And we can't do this by ourselves. So, um, you know, in terms of solutions, I think the solution is that our friends should be better friends to us. Adiva? I think I think there are some great points in there. You know, I think uh, what's particularly astute is that like white supremacy and like anti-feminism and so on and so forth is not the uh, exclusive domain of any one political party. Uh, it permeates throughout the whole country. Uh, and even some people of color and even some women, and even some women of color can still be utilized as tools of white supremacy and of sexism and of like of patriarchy. They can still uphold that and try to uh, benefit from proximity to whiteness. Um, so I think that was, that was a very good point. And that's, that's why Black women voters are struggling with the Democratic Party, right? Like trying to uh, still get this sort of respect uh, and uh, appreciation of concerns. Um, with that said, I personally don't think that uh, like Black Republicanism is like a real viable option. Um, there are there are Black conservatives, but I think that the Republican Party, uh, especially today, um, as we've seen, you know, demonstrated repeatedly throughout the Trump administration and in the years, um, yep, years now, I had to stop and check the date uh, following that. Uh, and like, you know, storming the Capitol and this and the other, like it's so much of it is animated by this uh, idea of like white supremacist patriarchy. 
And so I think even if you have, you know, people who would otherwise be on board with some conservative principles, they're going to struggle to find a home in the Republican Party as well, because they're so uh, frequently so open about their disdain uh, of people other than non-white men. Um, But, you know, that still that still leaves us in the position of, well, how do we get uh, how do we like fix that baseline? Like we can't even really talk about some of the like policy issues or like basic things because there's still that uh, like underlying issue uh, of like white supremacy and of sexism. So like that's the core that like has to be addressed so that we can have advancement on anything else. You know, what it makes me wonder is, um, and I've thought about this with my own voting, um, is there ever a reason to be blindly loyal to anyone? Right. Is there ever, you know, like I've thought more and more about candidate by candidate, race by race. And maybe I I definitely vote, but maybe I don't vote in every race. Or if there is no choice for me, why am I making one? I mean, Carlos, I want to that's exactly where I wanted to go. Right. With that. Um, I am a registered Democrat and have been for many years. That's every that has everything to do with how our registration requirements and our political system is structured. I do not actually consider myself a Democrat, right? I don't think the Democrats do much of anything for me except play in my face all day, right? Um, right. I, I consider myself someone who votes against Republicans um, and also has a vision for liberation, right? For non-men, for people of color, um, for working people, et cetera. And I think it is the sort of the contract the commercial law, the sort of economic student in me that always wonders at the polls, why should I continue to reward your bad behavior, right? And so even in my own personal voting, I am starting to wonder, like, do I not just concern myself with the down ballot elections that I know that, like, that I have a um, a say in? I am going to have, personally speaking, I'm going to have a very hard time casting a vote for Joe Biden, and I don't really care who he's up against, right? I have a hard time rewarding someone, right, who, number one, I continue to associate him with Anita Hill. I was only five, but I remember acutely. He is not my friend. (laughs) He is not an ally. And why should I continue to vote for someone who is an enemy, who is invested in my oppression and death, just because they call themselves a Democrat when they actually govern to the right of George Bush? Why? Why should I do that? Right. As an economic matter, why should I do that? So I don't know what's going to happen this year, but I think that unless, you know, as long as my student loan balance is high and that child tax credit still doesn't come through and they're out here talking about crack pipes as racial equity and all kind of foolishness during in front of my Black History Month, we're going to have a hard time at the polls. That's my last word. (laughs) I really want to, like, I need to incorporate not in front of my Black History Month into my lexicon, because seriously, this month has been a ride already. We're only nine days in, and it has been a ride. Uh, and I, I totally understand what you're talking about, about the struggle at the polls, and that uh, I'm, in, I'm in New York City, and our mayoral election, uh, I, like, wrote someone in for mayor for the first time, uh, because I was like, I can't vote for any of these people. <laughs> uh, like I voted on the, you know, further like down ballot things, but this one I was just like, huh, like I am, I am in a pickle. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, I very, I very much understand that uh, it's a real, it's a real conflict. And so let's, we definitely need this 
community liberation work. Uh, yeah, because this is very clearly unsustainable. I too have not forgotten about Anita Hill and I like bring it up at least once a week to people. <laughs> you know, I, I, I believe in the, with it Oprah or Maya Angelou or maybe both, you know, when people show you who they are, believe them. I believe, I believe Joe Biden with Anita Hill. I believed Joe Biden when he was against busing because I was bused to school like Kamala Harris and like probably both of you, right? Like that's how I got my opportunity going to school with, you know, people who didn't want me there with their children, people like Joe Biden. I went to school with those people's kids. Um, and so, and the idea that the only reason we're having this black woman SCOTUS nominee discussion is because of the backroom antics that happened with Clyburn disgusts me, right? The, the fact that we had a whole black president and could get a black woman on the Supreme Court. We got a Merrick Garland instead of a black woman. Like that's still hurt. We didn't even get him. Right. <laughs> <laughs> didn't want him, but didn't get him either. Right. Like that actually hurt my feelings. Like that lit, that hurt. Like I was personally, like it was as if Barack was my friend. And I'm going to call him Barack because that's how I felt when he did it. I was like, all the black women who Biden are considering now were eligible when he nominated Merrick Garland. Let's say that. These are facts. These are facts. And more black women who are no longer on the bench anymore were qualified then. There were tons of black women who were qualified for the bench when RBG said she was going to wait until Hillary got to nominate to replace her, right? So, you know, it's, our allies have been overlooking us forever and it's just extra frustrating. And it's because they're not allies. You want one last closing comment, Madiba? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you all are really hitting it home with sort of, with friends like these, you know? Uh, And so we need to, demand better and these these allies need to demand better of themselves as well it's like you said we're only so much of the population uh we need uh everyone we need all hands on deck this is five alarm fire moment for our for democracy mm-hmm. so we need everybody involved all right well i would like to thank my guests for joining me today i feel like this might need to be like a monthly segment or every six weeks or something because we're not done <laughs> um, If you ever miss an episode of Getting Common, you can listen to it anywhere that uh, you stream your podcasts. You can watch it on our YouTube channel. Join us next week when I will have two of my dear sister friends on, and we're going to talk about college choice. The topic next week is HBCUs versus PWIs. Is there a wrong choice with a particular interest in Black women? and what the right choices are for us in getting higher education. We're gonna talk about some unspoken things I wish I'd known when I was picking a university. You can find me by sending me emails through the show. You can find me on uh, social media at at Carla C on all platforms. Thank you everyone for listening. Thank you for tuning in to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Please join us again next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thoughtful discussion.